0: Hello and welcome to everyone to this new episode of Gapshap with Gil. So far we have had personalities from few, four countries. We have obviously had Indians, we have had one Pakistani uh, journalist, we have had an Australian journalist, and we have had an English journalist. Today we have a debut from one other uh, nationality and this time it's, it, it's, it's going to be a little surprising for you all because uh, this nationality is one who you don't really associate cricket with. I'm going to have one American cricket journalist uh, on the show today, he is none other than Peter Della Pena. Welcome, Peter. Welcome to the show. Uh, hope you're doing well, and uh, hope you're happy to be here. I
1: forgot, I forgot to get my USA flag out. I got my Hawaii T-shirt on. I represent the 50th state from America, but uh, USA, USA. Make an appearance on still Appreciate you having me on, here,
0: But but how many people, you know, uh, give, do, give give this uh, give give this reaction to you when you tell them that you're a cricket journalist and you're from the United States of America. You're a cricket journalist who's from America. So how many people uh, do is is there ever a, ever a retort or ever a reaction like Are you sure you're not following uh, baseball or you're you're following the wrong sport? I'm sure you must have got it somewhere no usually it's it's not am i in the wrong sport
1: the, the reaction typically is more along the lines of questioning whether i'm actually american and because i'm obviously in the crazy ground so i i didn't get lost on the way to the crazy ground it's the it's case of well yeah but before america you know where were you from are, are you australian are you south african are you are you english are you new zealander you know before america uh, I say, no, before America, I I was born in New York, know, born in New York, raised in New Jersey, born and raised in America. No, 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 no. no. But but before that, you know, where were you from? And I say, Well, before that, I was inside my mother's belly. Uh I, I don't know what else you're looking for me to say. Uh, you know, can you not understand my accent? I am an American. Do you know any Australians or do you know any South Africans who have this kind of accent? I don't know what other South Africans or Australians you met or Americans who you think sound like Australians or the South Africans, but I, I can assure you I'm American. And so these are the kind of conversations that happen where people were kind of um, incredulous to the fact that I'm, I'm an American covering cricket. And I, like, what I get the biggest kick out of in that regard is there's always these conversations that people have inside and outside of America of wanting to spread the game to America. Wanting to spread the game to new markets, the new horizons. And then somebody like me shows up. What they've been asking for is an American getting interested in cricket. And there's this denial, this refusal to accept the reality that's standing right in front of them that an American is talking cricket. And no, 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 it's not possible. No, no, I don't want to I don't want to hear this. You know, I'm covering my ear. I, I can't handle this. I can't handle this. And there's gotta be some other explanation to justify what I'm what is happening in front of my eyes and in front of my ears. And and so that is the thing that I, I think I find most comical about. The various interactions I've had in in cricket grounds and press boxes around the world, and with cricketers and and all sorts of other people, it, it, the the people within the cricket community are the most in denial, uh, which which I find to be amusing.
0: Yeah, because I think that comes from a place where so cricket uh, the cricket community, although it's big in number, it's not very widespread in terms of nationality. So it's it's something I think a lot of Asians pride themselves upon so for them knowing that an american Indo- american person knows more cricket than them can be sometimes quite of a shock but yeah I, I think you explained it very well when people keep asking you where you were from before when you went to america so uh, before i ask any further questions to you i just want to let our viewers know that uh, peter has been uh, associated with crick info uh, for for the last 10 years he also runs a podcast by the name of stars stars and stripes cricket podcast on you on youtube where he covers american cricket so if you ever want to know more about american cricket you can uh, re- read peter's articles or if not, nothing else you can watch his podcast and listen to it and you will definitely get a few good stories from american cricket now peter uh, you know i just want to know since the time you started covering the game in america how much has the game grown because my very early memory of america playing cricket is from the 2004 Champions Trophy where they were uh, in the same group as uh, New Zealand and Australia and they lost both games pretty badly. And since that time, I have not seen America, uh, you know, make it to any ICC World event. So do you think the the, the state of cricket and the, the development of cricket is, is much better than what it was when you started or do you think there's still a long way to go? The first part to answer
1: that question is To define growth how do you define growth or how do you define how cricket has grown in a country if you look at the raw volume and just the sheer numbers of participants you could argue that cricket has grown in the u.s because you've got more players playing depending on which data points you look at there are more clubs there are more leagues that have been established in the usa over the years, whether that's softball, cricket, tennis ball, cricket, or hardball cricket, there are definitely more and more raw numbers of people playing. But if you look a bit deeper into the data, who is making up those numbers? 99% of the players in the country that are playing cricket, watching cricket, going to websites, consuming cricket content and, and cricket products, there are 99% are of the West Indian or South Asian expat base. And so you get a lot of players who are, again, playing league cricket in New Jersey, and New York, in New Jersey, where I'm from. And you go to Texas. I was in Texas recently in April for the U.S. Inter-19 National Championships. And a lot of the players in the leagues in Houston and Dallas, again, 99% South Asian West Indian expatriate base. you very rarely come across people who are what you would consider, quote, quote, born and raised American. And that has nothing to do with ethnicity from that standpoint. I would argue that the majority of the players who are at the under-19 national championships in Texas, even though they're ethnically Indian, they're second generation kids. Okay, these kids are all born and raised in the U.S. And there's a huge distinction in my eyes between a kid who is born in California, born in Texas, born in New York, born in New Jersey. The, uh, the the MVP of the tournament, Sai Mukamala, Indian heritage, South Indian heritage. Okay, but Sai Mukamala born and raised in New Jersey. You hear him talk; he's got a very thick New Jersey accent. He does not sound like he's from India, but he's not. He's American. Okay, but Sai Mukamala is the exception to the rule in terms of the broad cricket playing base around the country the broad numbers if you look at junior cricket in the U.S. there might only be about 2,000 or so junior cricketers in America okay when you compare that in context to the overall playing base there could be as many as 100,000 to 150,000 players in America when you combine hardball cricket softball cricket tennis ball cricket whatever okay and the majority of those players who are adults who come in and populate the leagues come in as as they come into the country as adults. Okay, They're, they' they've played their developmental cricket overseas. They play their developmental cricket in India and in Pakistan and Jamaica, Guyana, Sri Lanka, Australia. There's now a South African wave coming in, uh, courtesy of Major League Cricket and the plans that are being staged to get a franchise competition come in. And there's been quite a, a strong surge of. Uh, South African flavor coming into the US cricket team, courtesy of that, and the end of the coal pack rule in the UK, that had a knock-on effect when now the money and the opportunities are starting to open up in the USA, and so you're going to, as opposed to South Africa, sorry, as opposed to the UK in the future, and it's already starting to happen. But anyway, the, the point is, get, get back to the I guess, the overarching point. Um, if, you're, if you're looking to measure growth as a, an indicator of the popularity of the sport in the country compared to other sports, or the, the level of osmosis that it has achieved in terms of seeping into the, the mainstream culture, it's, it's just not happening, okay? And um, that is still a very, 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 very long way off that could be 20 years 30 years 40 years away from happening and even though a lot of people like to make comparisons to soccer and say oh well you know 1994 USA hosted the FIFA World Cup and man that really transformed soccer and you know European football in the country and wow you know the, the English Premier League is so popular now and Champions League football is so popular and you've got guys like Kristen Pulisic who's playing for Chelsea and Weston McKinney in Italy and uh, other players who are, who are playing in, in uh, Tyler Adams is at Leipzig, and other guys who were playing Champions League football who were Americans, born and developed their, their soccer skills in the USA before getting signed to the European teams. What is lost in the whole comparison to FIFA and, and soccer is that when USA hosted the FIFA World Cup in '94, they had a very, very, very well-established grassroots soccer scene. You had multiple generations of kids who were playing soccer and playing youth, youth soccer and graduating to high school and college soccer. So you had a high school, very well-established high school uh, soccer system. You had a very well-established NCAA pathway where players could go on from high school to get a college scholarship to go play NCAA Division I soccer at various universities around the country, just like you would get a scholarship to play uh, American football, gridiron, or men's basketball, or baseball, or softball, or ice hockey. And, um, you know, if you look at the participation numbers now in, in youth soccer, okay, again, youth soccer, so even below high school level, so ages 6 to 12, this is charted Statistically, by something called the Aspen Institute out of Colorado, there are more than 1 million juniors and youth soccer players in America right now. Okay. It's just extraordinary. The number one participation sport for boys is baseball, still. You've got more than 4 million boys playing baseball around the country. Okay. And basketball is is into the several millions, not not quite as high as baseball, but basketball. Is there as an outlet for boys and girls? You've got more than two or three million people playing youth basketball, and that, again, that's below high school level, and doesn't include the high school and the NCA college basketball um, participation figures. Okay. Uh, soccer into in the in, in past, well past a million. I think it's around two million again, and that includes boys and girls. The no, number one girls participation sport in the country is girls soccer. Okay, so so there's an outlet there, not just for boys but for girls. Cricket doesn't have that we're talking millions in these other sports. Youth participation, cricket in America. There's roughly 2,000 boys participating nationwide. Okay, and girls, it, I think it's less than 100. There might be as few as 50 girls nationwide playing uh, organized cricket for females. Okay, at the at the junior level. And so the issue there is these other sports that are sustained and continuing to grow and thriving in America. The pyramid is inverted and in most sports, and this is not unique to the US it's like this in other countries too, 99% of your participation base should be youth sports, youth, youth athletes, junior athletes, kids, okay? Adults, old men in their 40s and 50s should not be comprising the majority of your playing base. If you want your sports to really be growing, attracting sponsors, attracting investment in infrastructure and getting roots in the community, that pyramid is, is upside down in cricket in America, okay? Instead of having 99% of the playing base be youth and promoting youth investment and youth infrastructure investment and community building, it's all adults. Who the hell is gonna to wanna to invest in a bunch of 40 and 50 year old men playing, uh, you know, smoking cigarettes a fine leg and, you know, 50 pounds overweight, you know, uh, chugging beers and donuts. It, that just doesn't attract sponsors and investment. And until that changes, and until there's a youth movement, where it gets involved at a local level, at a community-based level, where families are coming to the grounds, you're not gonna see true growth, okay? So the raw numbers in participation may have grown, but that's a very deceptive data point to look at because when you go a bit deeper and scratch beneath the surface, you'll see there are systemic issues in the US that really don't allow the game to grow in a meaningful way compared to other sports. And going back to your point about the Champions Trophy, again, in that Champions Trophy squad in 2004, you had, I think it was one American-born player in the team, in the, in the final squad, and Leon Romero, who was born in New York, but basically grew up in Trinidad he spent his whole life in Trinidad, played first ice cricket in Trinidad. The only other American-born player who was, who was, you could say, genuinely American-developed had played for the USA under-19 team, Amir Absolutin, Okay. He was dropped at the last minute. He was, he was in the squad. He had been in the squad all year. Okay. This was an opportunity to promote your junior development to showcase a a USA under 19 graduate. And what happened? Amir who was 19 or 20 years old at the time was bumped out of the team in favor of another player. And instead of having a, a 20 year old to showcase who you could show as uh evidence to the world that your junior development was succeeding and that you were trying to grow the game what happened? they bumped out the youngest player in the squad who was american developed american born and you had six players out of the 14-man squad who were over the age of 40 were all expats and you know played their cricket overseas so if that's if that's the the pathway that you're choosing to go down you're making it very 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 hard to enable genuine growth and development of the sport. That was back in 2004. 17 years later, not much has changed.
0: You make quite a few points and actually laid quite bare in terms of you know, while the numbers may be growing. It's very important to know where those numbers are coming from and what impact they might have. So very layered uh, answer to, to what constitutes growth of any sport in any country. And I think this is something which, uh, you know, all countries should look at as to how much are they promoting the sport at a younger level rather than, you know, promoting it as a hobby amongst 40 years old. So uh, uh, a brilliant answer of that. I I just recently read your article uh, on Crickinfo about the Intercontinental Cup. Now, I'll be very honest with you and I'll let you know that a lot of fans, I, I, I can't say the percentage, but I know that a lot of fans who are from the major uh, countries that play cricket, they really don't know much about the Intercontinental Cup and uh, the fact that it last happened in 2017 and now the future of it is quite uncertain. So one, I want to, you know, sort of explain it uh, for the viewers as to what that Intercontinental Cup is and uh, how do you see it as a future and how do you see it as a stepping stone for a lot of associate nations?
1: Well, for the history of the Intercontinental and for people who are not aware, it started in 2004. It was actually the brainchild of Bob Woolmer, the late Bob Woolmer, when he was at the time the head of the, the head development officer for the ICC, and it was designed as a competition that would give associate countries an opportunity to play first-class cricket to develop their skills, especially in countries where there was no first-class cricket domestically. So, if you look at, say, for example, USA participated in the very first one. People may not be aware and may not remember, but USA, Canada, Bermuda was done on a regional basis the first year, first year or two. And so you would have teams divided by region and then the regional champion would play in a semifinal and then into a final. So you would have Nepal played in these two continental Cup out of Asia in the first year. I believe Malaysia may have played in it as well. And you had the things from Africa, Namibia, Uganda, Kenya, you had uh, Ireland, Scotland, Netherlands, in Europe, and these are all countries that basically don't have any first class infrastructure, they don't have first class competition. So instead of just having them rely on the 50 over cricket as the longest format for the development, Bob Wilmer and others at the ICC at the time designed this pathway. And It allowed more opportunities to to grow, and it also enabled players to play in a different type of pressure environment. So in associate cricket, most of the matches that are played in ICC events have so much at stake. When you talk about the World Cricket League or World Cup qualifiers, the consequences are, monumental they can be so drastic and so devastating at times and so uplifting at times as well if you qualify world for world cup that's a huge moment in your country's history as an associate nation if you fall short of qualifying for world cup where you lose odi status that can have extremely devastating consequences in terms of funding and opportunities to play fixtures and so in limited overs cricket in the associate world these matches I don't think there's anywhere else in cricket that has this kind of pressure. You can argue about the quality and say, yes, all right, nobody's going to say uh, the quality of cricket you see at the associate level is comparable to what you get out of Virat Kohli or Joe Root or Babar Azam or, or Kane Williamson. Okay. I'm, I'm never going to argue that. I'm not, I'm not stupid, but if Kane Williamson gets out for a duck in, a, in an ODI against India, Nothing's going to happen to Kane Williamson in the grand scheme of things. Nothing's going to happen in New Zealand cricket in the grand scheme of things. Kane Williamson's still going to be on a central contract the next day. Okay. Um, New Zealand cricket's not going to go four overnight. Okay. If if New Zealand bombs out of the World Cup, instead of going to the World Cup final 2019, if they bomb out of the World Cup, Kane Williamson scores 10 runs in seven matches. Okay. Kane Williamson still has a contract. Kane Williamson will be all right. Okay. That's not the case in associate cricket. If a team bombs out of a World Cup or if a team bombs out of a World Cup qualifying, there's a very real possibility that that captain or that player may not have a contract the next day. His contract may be torn up, okay? Because it's not just about the player. That national board, their funding that they have budgeted might go up in smoke overnight because that's how incredibly consequential the results are at associate level, okay? So the pressure associated with that, completely incomparable to what a Test Nation player experiences. In terms of skills development though, okay, what, what the Intercontinental Cup offered was, yes, there's more pressure, it tests the skills more, in terms of a, a three-day match or a four-day match, and the exposure that you get on the field, and the amount of testing spells, and you know the duration, and the ability to survive different conditions, and to survive a sustained spell of spin bowling or swing bowling, whatever. But and that's that's one kind of pressure. But on the flip side, you don't have the pressure of, if you fail on the Intercontinental Cup, your funding is not going to go up in smoke overnight. You're not going to lose your contract overnight because you're not at risk of failing to qualify for a World Cup if you fall flat in one innings or in one match in the Intercontinental Cup. So it gave an outlet for these countries to develop and to get match practice, for lack of a better term. I mean, these were these were legitimate matches. These were sanctioned matches. But it, just the opportunities to get experience out in the middle, these countries uh, and players didn't have that in, in multi-day cricket. So it, it offered players just time, time to get experience time to learn about their games and just time to grow from a technical standpoint. And you saw the greatest evidence of that from Afghanistan. I would say slightly lesser extent Ireland, but if you think of Afghanistan's rise uh, to, to test status, it was quicker than Ireland. Ireland came onto the scene in 2007 even though Ireland and Afghanistan were admitted at the same time as test nations, as full member nations. Ireland made their big splash in 2007. They qualified for the 2007 World Cup in 2005, had two years to prepare, they go to the World Cup, they beat Pakistan, that's a a big moment to kind of use as a launching pad. Afghanistan was still nowhere in 2007, right? They only show up on the international scene really in 2008 at World Cricket League Division five in Jersey, and they, they use the World Cricket League pathway to, to go up the ladder from Division 5 to Division 1 to get ODI status initially and then qualify for a T20 World Cup first in 2010. They go to the qualifier in the UAE. They beat, they beat USA. They beat Ireland in the final. They beat Scotland as well. And they go to the World Cup in the West Indies and then they qualify again in 2012 and 2014. And they finally reached their their first 50 over World Cup in 2015, and even then they, they weren't they weren't um, you know what they did was so fast. But part of that again, all these achievements were done on limited overs cricket. But what was lost in that is the growth that they were enabled to do, courtesy of the intercontinental cup. While all these things were happening in T20 cricket and 50 over cricket, their improvement was. Evidence by the opportunities they got in the Intercontinental Cup. I mean, Mohammed Shazad. everybody knows Mohammad Shahzad in, in Afghanistan cricket is this hard hitting, dashing wicketkeeper who plays these fiery uh, knocks in T20 cricket and in 50 over cricket. People may overlook the fact that in 2010, Mohammed Shazad scored a double hundred in the fourth inning to chase down a target of I think it was 495 against Canada In a four day intercontinental cup match. That's extraordinary. For a country that has only just started playing four day cricket in 2009, skills and one day cricket, those are the kind of stories, the hidden stories that people may be not uh, aware of that demonstrated Afghanistan's growth and their capability to not just be a one trick pony and limited over cricket. They they showed the capability of doing that over a sustained period of six, seven, eight years in four day cricket. And the intercontinent took up allowed of that for Afghanistan and Ireland, and the shame of it is the elimination of that competition has now closed the door on countries like USA, Oman, Nepal, Namibia, Scotland, from getting that same opportunity. And that's why I think, you know, in going back to the article I wrote, it, teams at associate level are crying out for the same opportunities that Afghanistan and Ireland got, and I know there's some funding issues, some budget issues, but that door should really be reopened if administrators globally are serious about wanting cricket to grow and seeing more countries get opportunities
0: in the game. I just want to let the viewers know what you mentioned about uh, about Mohammad shahzad that he scored a double hundred in the fourth innings. Uh, Kyle Myers, when he scored that double hundred on debut versus Bangladesh in Chattogram in February this year, was only the sixth double hundred in test matches over more than 100 years. So, you know, scoring a double 100 in fourth innings, regardless of what level of cricket it is, it is a difficult, it is a very difficult and sometimes even I'd say an unimaginable job because in more than 2,000, 2,400 test matches, rather, you've only had six double 100s in the fourth innings. So that's a that's a massive achievement. And uh, I was shocked to, you know, just hear that, what you said, that he scored a double 100. I I don't think anyone... Uh, can imagine him scoring a, a test century let alone a, a I'd say a first first class century let alone scoring a double hundred in the fourth innings because he doesn't come across as that character you wouldn't associate that temperament with him so you're very right that four-day cricket does lead to a lot of development and progress to uh, to countries like Afghanistan and Ireland uh, so the next thing that I want to you know uh, you you've also addressed that how, uh, it's the way to get more test-playing nations because if, if the door is closed on other countries to play uh, the Intercontinental Cup or not to host it at all, then you wouldn't really get more test-playing nations, which is something that is discussed. So uh, I think this is the answer that that viewers are looking for, that this is how you can get more test-playing nations because without this, if you, if you play or if you bring in teams who are underprepared, then you'll get another argument, which you very recently heard was, should Zimbabwe stop playing Test cricket, which was, you know, said by quite a few voices, and I, and I was quite opposed to it. I was like, if if this is if this is how you are going to you know keep keep shutting down teams which are which are not very strong at this moment, then you will never going to have new cricket forces. Sri Lanka at one point of time also you know used to struggle this much in Test matches, even India did. So, what do you have to say on uh, you know these these statements that come out every once in a while whenever there's a poor show by any associate team that uh, should they play? Should they not play? You know, w- as someone who's covered it so extensively, you know, uh, w- what's the first reaction that comes to your mind?
1: The first reaction that comes to my mind is for a game and a sport that has such a rich history. International cricket going back to 1844 with USA and Canada. That's 33 years before the first Ashes Test between Australia and England in 1877. Okay, and the game goes back 300 plus years, right? For a game with that kind of history, I find it astounding that people have such short memories. People react as though cricket only began in 2001, or some people act as though cricket only began in 2021. They talk as if, oh, you know, there was was never a time in history when India struggled in tests. There was never a time when Pakistan struggled in tests. There was never a time when New Zealand struggled in tests. Where New Zealand lost whatever it was you know the first twenty one test matches or their first you know, forty test matches whatever it was New Zealand went a very long time without winning a single test match and now they're in the world Test championship final. but the way you, you people talk about cricket today, you would think New Zealand started playing cricket and test cricket in in two thousand and twenty one and that first twenty or thirty years of their history where they couldn't win a single test match never happened. this doesn't exist and so that, that's what really gets me and grates and me is the fact that a lot of the talking heads live in this alternate universe or they, or they kind of project this alternate reality where there was never a time when any of these teams struggled. And let's just, let's just pretend that all that never happened and that Zimbabwe is the first team in test cricket history that's ever struggled or Afghanistan is the first team in cricket history that's ever, you know, struggled. When, when Afghanistan made their test debut against India and they lost, was it inside of two days, two and a half days, two days, yeah. And again, yeah, oh my God, it's, you know, they they have sullied the reputation of test cricket for all time's sake. And uh, they have besmirched the cricket record books and oh, you know, this, this whole year than now. commentary, oh, The record books, the record books, oh. What are we going to do about the record books? Oh, they've they've smeared and stained the, the statistical records, and you know, should we count a, a century scored by Shikhar Dhawan if it came against Afghanistan? Oh my God, this is, this is just a, how how can we how can we get over this 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 you know this dark day in cricket history when Afghanistan was bowled out inside of two days and, against India and Bangalore? Oh, you know, oh, dear dear Lord, you know, but you know, oh, you know, clutching and all that. Uh yeah. uh yeah again go back to the of afghanistan this is a team that when they were first starting i think it was their first their first ever match or their second ever four day match was against zimbabwe and it was a draw it was a high scoring draw i think they scored 450 or 500 in the second innings um after you know they were they were bowled out zimbabwe batted and then afghanistan batted again and batted, I think, for over a hundred overs And the very, very first, uh, you know, part part of the intercontinental Cup against Zimbabwe, which was an established test nation, and Zimbabwe was coming back into the intercontinental Cup to help ease their transition back into test cricket because they they uh, removed themselves from test cricket voluntarily for a five or six year period from 2005 to 2010, 2011, thereabouts. But those Zimbabwe wow. players were still talented, right? and Afghanistan comes. Very green, not having any four day experience, and is able to do that against the test nation. Okay. Um, and so, uh, and, and I, again, there was, you know, all this, oh my God. Rashid Khan, what a what a con man, what a joker. Oh, he's, a, he's just a one trick pony in P20 cricket. Yeah. He doesn't know how to bowl an extended spell. Who is he kidding? Coming, walking into Bangalore and pretending like he's going to be able to bowl. You know, six different balls in over. He has no clue who had a bull in the extended, you know, multi-day cricket. Completely ignoring the fact that Rashid Khan had taken a couple of 10 wicket match halls and numerous five wicket halls in the Intercontinental Cup against Ireland, against other teams in multi-day cricket. You know, again, so there were all these, these just very superficial arguments. Oh, these you guys don't have any test experience. They don't know what the hell they're doing. Well, did the Intercontinental Cup never happen? I mean. You know, were you guys asleep when all those matches happened? Rashid Khan has plenty of four-day experience. You know, yeah, everybody knows him as a, an IPL star, a superstar, a million-dollar IPL man, and, and the world's number one ring forward.
0: I think it was last year only when Rashid bowled 100 odd overs in a test match, and I think he did that with an injury, if I'm not wrong.
1: Yeah, he may have. I, you wouldn't know better than I am. But, you know, that was all the argument. And then, and then what happened? You know, a year or two years later, what happened? Rashid Khan, what did he take? Eleven wickets. Eleven wickets in the match against Bangladesh. Yep. When Afghanistan beat Bangladesh in the, in the Test match, in Bangladesh, in Bangladesh. not
0: not in In Bangladesh, which right? is so, Yeah. So, um you know, there were these knee-jerk
1: reactions. Oh yeah uh, You know, the record books. Oh, 02 days two-day, two-day match. Oh, you know, this, this, this uh this head-shaking and head-scratching and. And, 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 oh, it's oh, the history of the game. Oh, they've shamed the history of the game. We're going to have to, you know, how are we going to be allowed to remember this match without an asterisk? We're going to need to put an asterisk next to this match in the record because it was just, oh, it was just a, a shameful name or two days in cricket history when Afghanistan was pulled out inside of two days. And so that's what bothers me is this lack of recognition and appreciation for the history where everybody struggled to varying degrees. And there's a lack of patience. The, the game has accelerated so much in terms of its commercial value. And it's com- competing with other, other formats. You know, it's, it's, test cricket isn't just competing with other sports. Test cricket is competing with ODI cricket. Test cricket is competing with D20 cricket for airspace. Test cricket is competing with franchise cricket for airspace. So, um, And in a sense, you, ha- you have to kind of treat them as three different sports. Test cricket is a different sport from ODI cricket is a different sport from T20 cricket. Okay, You can't just, um, I think sometimes there's a a lack of recognition of the fact that you can't just use cricket as a sport, as a catch-all and say, well, everything is cricket or everything applies as one thing to cricket. You need to compartmentalize and analyze and look at how you treat test cricket differently differently from how you treat T20 cricket and and one-day cricket and how they compete with each other and how they compete with different sports and so just just in, but just in general um yeah you need to have patience you now you know test cricket is, is, is about patience in five days and going on for five days but for some reason administrators and some people in the media they don't have that patience uh for other teams uh it, you know or as much as they talk about test cricket being a game of patience and and you know allowing these stories to unfold, well they they don't want to have any patience for these for these new countries. You know, now no, 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 no. they want every everybody, you know, all 12 test nations should be competing equally, is essentially what they're arguing. You know, there should be no no varying degrees of competition, no varying de- degrees of depth and playing strength. If if everybody isn't equally competitive and if everybody can't beat e- Everybody. Well, then, well, it's not even worth playing. Well, I've already you know, which is just ridiculous. Um, and if that attitude permeates, you're never going to have have cricket grow. There, there needs to be more uh, patience overall for there to be an acceptance and a willingness for not just the likes of Afghanistan and Ireland and Zimbabwe to have opportunities to to grow and and um. Get their feet wet in Test cricket, but also to, to reopen that door, because like said, to the Intercontinental Cup, so that one day in Nepal, Papua New Guinea, the USA, the Canada, the Uganda, Namibia, these countries should have their their opportunity as well. There's, there shouldn't be anything restricting them, other than uh, you know who's willing to schedule them in a match. Almost like what
0: you're saying is that the people that this people who say that they love test cricket for the patience and everything that is involved in it, they are themselves not patient when a new uh, team is on the blocks and you make a very good point in the sense that if people start losing patience today it is Zimbabwe, tomorrow it could be uh, South Africa or Sri Lanka who are also struggling, then you will, what would you eventually you know, have? You'll only have the top three playing test cricket if you're not uh, being patient. So that—that that, that is definitely something which is food for thought for a lot of cricket fans and viewers that you need to give that time, and I think uh, you know it's not just with respect to test cricket; it's also with respect to recognizing or you know allowing that space for any new talent who's on the blocks to be to be you know given some time before you start passing off judgments. Uh, so yeah. you know, since you cover you you, you spend a lot of times or time also with these associate nations and teams, you know, covering their issues. I want to know what was the reaction amongst those cricket boards and amongst those players when they got to know that the World Cup has been restricted from 14 to 10 teams and how difficult it is going to be, you know, for them. What, what, were, the, what were the reactions? And, uh, you know, the, uh, the I'm sure there must be a lot of disappointment. What were the, you know, thoughts that were uh, in their minds and uh, circulating all around amongst the associate teams? Well,
1: this links back to the test trigger question too. So if you're going to limit teams, and tell them they can't play test cricket okay by default they're going to make one day cricket their pinnacle so you've closed off the pathway to test cricket because you shut the entry content up right now what's the, what's the peak long format they have Maybe. available some 50 over, 50 over cricket right and now you're telling them well not only are we going to shut the door to test cricket but we're going to reduce the opportunities for 50 over cricket in the world cup from 14 to 10 teams. So unless you do something miraculous and beat a full member nation in qualifying, well, we're going to shut that off to you too. Again, big picture. If you're trying to grow the sport, why are you limiting opportunities? How can, you know, administrators, global administrators, they're talking out of both sides of their mouth when it comes to this issue. Oh, we want to grow the game. You know, we want to grow the game. Right the side of the oh, we're going to limit the World Cup to 10 teams because we want to maximize commercial rights out of that side of their mouth. You can't be talking out of both sides of your mouth if you're an administrator and claim that you want to grow the game and then restrict it in the most severe way possible by denying teams the opportunity to go to a World Cup, which is, in effect, the biggest platform them to, to showcase themselves to get sponsorships to recruit new players to the sport to encourage current players to stick with the sport rather than retiring and, and pursue a different career that will pay them a bit more money these are just real life decisions that people have to make in terms of just their their family situations and logistics and weighing up opportunity costs from an economic standpoint. And I know there's USA players who have said to me in the past when people talk to me about, oh, you know, the pride of playing for your country and nothing can match the pride of, of representing your nation. And, you know, doesn't it mean the world to you to represent USA? Why are you bypassing an opportunity to represent USA? How could you say no to going on a tour if, you're, if you get a phone call and the selector tells you you're You're going to go play for USA in a World Cup qualifying event. And a couple of these players have said to me, that's great. Pride and honor of playing for USA and $1.50 will get me a gallon of milk to feed my kids at breakfast. Pride and honor for playing for USA plus $2 will get me a loaf of bread and some peanut butter so I can make my kids a sandwich. For breakfast or to take to go to school. Pride and honor doesn't pay much. Pride and honor doesn't pay anything in some of these countries. So, um, you know, there there is, there are so many factors involved in, in wanting to spread the game, but if the money isn't there, and more so the opportunity is not there, you're restricting the opportunities, which means Contracts are not possible. If you're restricting an opportunity to go to World Cup, that might mean, yeah, central contracts are not possible in a country like the USA. That means a guy, you know, the pride and honor argument, okay, if there's no money, pride and honor only gets you so far, okay, he might have to give up the sport to go get a job doing something else, go, go work in a bank, go work as an engineer, go work as a teacher, go drive an Uber car. There's a lot of USA players who are doing that right now before the pandemic and during the pandemic to make make a, a, a buck because they're not making any money playing cricket right now because there is no cricket to be played. So there's quite a number of USA players who are driving Ubers. There was the, the, the story of Paul Van Maker in, in the Netherlands uh, as an Uber Eats driver to help make ends meet during the pandemic. That got a lot of press. That's, that's not unique. I know there's, there's players in Canada who during the pandemic and before the pandemic, they've been working as Amazon delivery drivers to make ends meet. If they want to sustain their cricket, they can't be playing in jobs or they can't have jobs that are full-time, nine-to-five jobs that would allow them to train for cricket in the way that they want to. So what do they do? They have to find a job that offers some sort of flexibility. So they, they, they drive an Uber or they work as an Amazon delivery driver, delivering packages for Amazon. These are some of the challenges that the players face. And part of these challenges are born out of the fact that the higher up administrators on the world cricket team are restricting the opportunities to them. So if they don't have that World Cup opportunity, they don't have an opportunity for their board to get a central contract, to get the funding, to get the exposure, to get the sponsorships, all these things are intertwined. And so, you know, if, if that's the attitude that's taken by leading administrators, you're not gonna see the game grow. You're not gonna see the game grow in test cricket. You're not gonna see the game grow in limited overs cricket. This whole argument of, oh yeah, we're gonna see 20 to spread the game we're gonna use limited overs cricket to spread the game. It's it's garbage in some ways because again their actions don't match their, their words. Their deeds don't match their words. They're restricting opportunities. They're restricting earning uh, capabilities for players. And when that happens, that's that's only gonna further entrench the power of the leading countries like again England, Australia, India. And it's only going to to, to further lengthen the disparity between them and not just the other test nations but associate nations below them and you're you're just not going to see the game grow until those things change it's going to be very difficult for other countries to grow and and get that exposure for the sport overall to grow very uh, uh,
0: very enlightening answer in the sense that it actually gives the depth of your earlier statement that the pressure in associate games is a lot more than the pressure, uh, you know that that the mainstream cricketers from mainstream countries are exposed to or, you know, playing under because Virat Kohli. Forget Virat Kohli. Forget, forget Virat Kohli. Forget Kane Williamson. Anyone who's who's even in the lower lower most bracket of the contracts in the top most countries do not have this sort of pressure that they will have to probably drive an Uber. Or, you know work as an amazon delivery guy so we it, it gives a lot of perspective in the sense of uh, how uh, the players who are playing in for the associate nations they have a lot more much on their plate and people also some them need to be slightly more considerate of their situations before you know they just give a verdict that should these countries even be playing cricket in the first place I think it's mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's very insightful that you've you know laid down these bare facts for us because I, I can I can tell you this for sure that a lot of people don't even know about these uh, situations. So, you know, uh, be- very, very, very enlightening. And I hope people uh, understand to you is that uh, this this year, the T20 World Cup, uh, Papua New Guinea are going to be making their debut uh, in an ICC tournament. I mean the senior team. They've, they've played in the under-19 World Cup, but for the very first time, they're going to be playing in, in a men's event, in a men's senior event. Uh, I had spoken to Jared Kimber, and he said that he's very uh, excited about them, and it's perhaps the best feeling team he's con- uh, he's come across. What are your thoughts on on the likes of Papua New Guinea and even Oman? Oman, I also are, are going to, you know, play for the very first time, if I'm not wrong. I think they were there in uh, twenty sixteen or twenty fourteen qualifiers. I think they were there in the twenty fourteen T Twenty World World Cup qualifiers. So they are also twenty sixteen, yeah, yeah. So they are also making a, a making a. a Appearance once again. Namibia is going to come back again after 18 years. So, what what do you how do you look at the T20 World Cup uh, from the uh, from the point of view of looking at new associate teams and a new uh, and a few new talents that might come across us during the T20 World Cup? So, Gurkirat, you, you mentioned
1: Jared Kimber and what he said about Papua New Guinea and them being the best fielding side he's seen. Ivan covering Papua New Guinea matches since. 2009 at junior level, and 2011 at men's level. And I would agree, hands down, best fielding side at associate level for sure. And you can argue the best fielding side period in international cricket. They are a country, and I I only got on the scene in 2009. I'm sure it was like that well before I, I arrived. But when you see them in person, it's extraordinary. The, you know, Ian Bishop, when he was on, on TV at the 50-over World Cup qualifier in Zimbabwe in 2018, he was blown away. I remember him talking very, very highly of, of Papua New Guinea when he saw them at the 50-over World Cup qualifier in Zimbabwe. And then again in 2019 when he was in the UAE doing the qualifier coverage for the T20 World Cup qualifier where Papua New Guinea won their group to qualify for the, the T20 World Cup for the first time. And what is extraordinary about their fielding in my eyes is their foot speed to the ball. So often, fielding analysis is confined to catching ability, you know, catching sharpness and throwing strength and ability to throw down the stumps, run throwing accuracy. Very rarely do I see or hear much analysis on television focusing on foot speed and how important that is. In the field, Papua New Guinea is the best team I've seen at any level in terms of their foot speed to the ball. I would argue some of the Australian teams in the 2000s, when Ricky Ponting was at backward point and in the covers, and Michael Clark, and you had Andrew Simons in those teams, those Australian teams, and even nowadays, their catching standards and their ability to affect runouts. Ricky Ponting was just a relentless, merciless force throwing down the stumps. You did not give him an opportunity, because lights out. That was it. And now, I would say uh, Ravindra Jadeja, in terms of fielders, he's the one fielder in the world. I would say you do not give him an opportunity to throw the stumps, because he's absolutely merciless, Okay. but Papua New Guinea, you know, their catching is good. Their, their throwing is good. But where they are merciless is in their foot speed to the ball. They cut off and create havoc in the circle by getting to the ball quicker than any other fielding unit in, in international cricket. And it's, it's very deceptive. A lot of their players, you would, at first glance, underestimate them because physically they just don't look that imposing. But you get out into the field and, and they are like quicksilver. So run it between the wickets when when they're batting, run it running between the wickets. It's just quicksilver, Absolute lightning. They're in the field again, just just lightning in the field. They they create chaos and they create havoc and distress just from denying singles and creating indecision, indecisiveness by that foot speed to the ball, which is so underrated in in so many aspects of cricket, and it's not really evaluated that well and measured that well in terms of evaluating fielding effectiveness and and fielding ratings. And that's where Papua New Guinea excels. Backward point, in the covers, in the ring, mid-on, mid-off. You cannot be risking singles against Papua New Guinea. And that that to me is exciting to watch when I see them in the field and the noise they make, the passion, the infectiousness, the energy that they have. Oh, yipping and a Yeah, They're always just making so much noise. And it's it's hard not to smile when you're talking about them and thinking about them and just just the spirit that they have on the field. And and in saying those things, I, I don't want to get carried away talking those things up because in, in some way I find it almost disrespectful or denigrating to their actual skill level. These, these players are extremely skilled, extremely talented. They have very good batting skills. They have very good bowling skills in terms of swing bowling. They don't have any out-and-out basers, but their skill in terms of moving the ball, moving the ball you know, in the air, wrist position and all that. They've had a lot of coaching from Australian um, former pros over the years with Peter Anderson, former longtime time keeper in Australian first bus cricket, Andy Bickle. Um, you know, Joe Dawes was there. Uh, Jason Gillespie has been there in the past. Uh, Carl Sandry, who himself played for Italy, is an australian uh, bass player who, who played for Italy, dual national, played in the associate scene, has just become their head coach, Carl Sandry. So, um, you know, they've gotten an awful lot of experience on the, the coaching side that has contributed to them. But, but they're, they're very, very skilled players. Deepak Patel, I don't want to leave Deepak Patel Deepak Patel had a huge influence from New Zealand, spending a, a quite a few years there coaching the uh, Papua New Guinea side. Um, but, yeah, they're a high-energy team, and it, it's just hard not to, to fall in love with them when you watch them for the first time. And I'm really excited to see how other people react when they get a chance to see them for, for the first time on, on a true global platform. But, you know, two players in particular I'd want to mention on that that field in front of Legacy Aka is, I think, one of the top fielders in international cricket. And he's been on the the Papua New Guinea scene for quite a long time. He played for the under-19s in 2009, 2010, Legacy Aka. And Charles Amini, CJ Amini. The Amini family is a very, very um, long lineage in Papua New Guinean cricket. And his father played, his mother was a national team captain. His grandfather played with a captain, I believe. Uh, the national stadium in Port Morrisby, Amini Park, is named after the Amini family. And so CJ Amini, Charles Amini, uh, is a leg spinner, leg spinning all-rounder. I think he should be playing in the big badge somewhere. I don't know why he, you know, he's not getting a contract boot because, again, a lot of these players on the associate team, they're just kind of hidden off the radar. They don't get much television exposure. I think CJ Amini is a player who, Once he gets on television in the T20 World Cup, I would find it very, very hard to believe that he would not get an initial contract offer in some franchise T20 competition, whether it's the Big Bash or something else in the CPL or uh, another league that – offers opportunities, PSL, whatever. CJ Amini as a leg spinner. Leg, spin- leg spinners are always in demand. in deep funny cricket now. And his fielding is at another level. And so Legacy Aka and, and CJ Amini in terms of fielding and, and Legacy Aka's batting skills, he's a very powerful opening batsman. CJ Amini in the middle order and as a leg spinner. Those are the two guys I would be keeping an eye on if, if you're um, looking for somebody to, to focus on what Papua New Guinea comes on the scene
0: Well uh, that's, that's, that's two names that I would definitely look forward to when the world20 comes but uh, you you mentioned another thing that wa- you're surprised at why uh, Charles Amini is is not playing a league so far and I, I want this brings me to something else which uh, you know which is sometimes discussed in a few cricketing circles in terms of how uh, the associate nations can improve so, there's always been a suggestion that whenever teams are coming to play India for test matches, they should probably play a four-day game or a test match versus Afghanistan because Afghanistan plays most of its games in India, either in Dehradun or in Lucknow. And, uh, you know, a few years back, even Jason Gillespie had given this uh, suggestion that who was the coach of Papua New Guinea at that time, that probably Papua New Guinea need to play in the Australian domestic uh, limited overs to so what do you feel about these uh, uh, these suggestions? Do you think that they, they go a long way in helping? Because a lot of people also say that the reason why uh, someone like uh, uh, Ireland or, or Scotland or Netherlands have improved is because they've, they've had players who've played the county cricket a lot. So what, what's your take on this? Again,
1: you, you need a willing partner. So there needs to be some sort of magnanimity from the full member board, full member host nation. It would be great for Papua New Guinea to be part of the Australian first-class domestic system. But again, that takes a willingness from Cricket Australia and an open-mindedness from Cricket Australia. Do they want to open up their domestic system to making room for Papua New Guinea, if not necessarily in the Sheffield Shield right away, at the very least, the one-day cup, why not, why not allow Papua New Guinea to participate in the, in the one-day cup? Because again, to open, uh, there's some logistical factors I think people kind of overlook when these things come up. To welcome a team into a first-class competition would mean basically funding them. Somebody would need to fund them. Either the, the, the associate board would need to fund them or the host full member would need to fund them in terms of their participation in the competition. And in a first class structure, that could be six months. Now, if, if you're saying, oh, um, you know, three, four, five months, whatever, if, if you're saying Afghanistan should be welcomed into uh Rangi Trophy, well, that's a month long competition. Uh, that they would need to pay for flights, travel, hotels to cover all these costs, in addition to the contract fees and match fees for Afghanistan. Afghanistan is pretty well off for an. Uh, uh, a lower-ranked test nation, but they can't... I don't know if they can afford all of that. Papua New Guinea doesn't have that kind of funding. Okay, so, so you know, could Papua New Guinea realistically participate in the Sheffield Shield? If the Sheffield Shield runs from November to March, five months, you're going to ask... You're asking them to... Somebody to put up five months' worth of money to fund them to travel around in hotels for five months in Australia because they don't have a home page. This is a guest-visiting country, right? So it's not like you know, New South Wales or Western Australia, where for five out of the 10 matches, they're home. They can go to their, their, their houses, their apartments, their flats, whatever, and their home training facilities. You're, you're, if you welcome an associate into a competition like that, they're, they're gonna be the nomads. They're, they're always gonna be on the road living a, out of a suitcase. And that has always been an issue in the last decade or so at international cricket level. And if it's an issue there, well, then it's definitely gonna be an issue at domestic level if you try and welcome these teams in. So for first class cricket, I think it's a stretch just for the logistical factor. Not a comp, not it has nothing to do with competitive nature. I think Papua New Guinea could be quite respectable from a competitive standpoint in the Sheffield Shield if they were to enter a team into the, the Sheffield Shield because they've been very competitive when they've got and they've gotten opportunities to play in um, the intercontinental Cup. But it's nothing to do with a competitive standpoint. It's, it's purely a logistical thing. I think it, it's a lot more feasible from a cost and logistics standpoint to welcome some of these teams into a one-day cup competition or a domestic T20 cup competition outside of any franchise competition if they if they've got a, a T20 domestic competition um, you know, in India, like say, for example, that aside, Mushta Ali trophy, which is independent of the IPL, right? Um you know, if, if, uh, if an Afghanistan team was welcomed into that, I think that would be fantastic. if Papua New Guinea, again, in Australia, if Papua New Guinea was allowed, uh, welcomed by Cricket Australia to participate in the One Day Cup, which in recent years, if I'm not mistaken, the One Day Cup in Australia has been confined to a, a two or three week period. Where instead of it being spread out over the course of a four month, five month summer, just condense it into a couple week period, get all the matches out of the way in a, in a specific location, that's, that's achievable. And other countries and other regions have done that. So in the past, say for example, Namibia has been welcomed into the uh, Cricket South Africa Provincial Competition. And the Namibian players have gotten a hell of a lot of growth and experience out of participating in that, which has been wonderful. USA and Canada in recent years have been welcomed into the one day competition in the West Indies. So USA, and I, I, went, um, I went to Trinidad in November 2019, for that competition to cover USA, USA was involved in the group with uh, Trinidad and Tobago, the West Indies emerging team, which wound up actually winning the tournament. Uh, the West Indies was effectively an under-19, under-23 side, which had Joshua De Silva as one of the stars, who has now uh, made his test debut since then. He was kind of off the radar. Uh, but I remember he scored a, a half century against the USA and uh, was looking quite sharp. And You could see he was a player to watch out for. Um, But yeah, USA went, Canada went. USA, I think, went three years in a row from uh, 2018, January, 2018, October. And so it was the 2017-18 season, 2018-19, and 2019-20. Again, USA went in November 2019 to Trinidad. They didn't go to the most recent one-day cup competition in the West Indies because of COVID restrictions and and COVID logistical factors. But USA and Canada essentially have an open invitation from the Cricket West Indies uh, board to participate in the uh, West Indian regional one-day competition, which is fantastic. And the USA players have definitely benefited from participating in that. The Canada players I know have, have benefited significantly from participating in that. So the evidence is there. It's just a matter of spreading that further fields. Um, you know, Ireland and Scotland and Netherlands used to participate in the one-day competition in England. They have not in recent years. For a variety of reasons, in part because some of those boards felt they could never field their best team because a lot of the players were already uh, on contracts with other counties. So if you had, you know, Paul Sterling's playing for Middlesex and William Porterfield is, I forget if you, if you William Porterfield was at Warwickshire, um, you know, Board of England is at Warwickshire, um, ECB One Day Cup. You know, six, seven, eight out of the first choice players. Andy Valverney was playing uh some, you know, in, in Middlesex for a while. Um, George Soccer was at Somerset. Uh Stuart Pointer was at Durham, I believe. And so you've got seven, eight, nine first choice Ireland players who are on county contract at that stage. And essentially you're you're entering in an Ireland B side into the competition. That's now that's great for the Ireland kind of second run players to get that opportunity, but you're not getting a true representation of Ireland's best competitive strength in that event. And that was part of the reason why they withdrew along with Scotland and, and the Netherlands. Um, you've got an awful lot of Dutch players who are playing county cricket, but they wouldn't be necessarily available to play for a Netherlands team if they were entered as a Netherlands side in that competition. So there's, there's, very, there's some quirks in different regions of the world, but where possible, I think it, it's a fantastic initiative. You know, it's been demonstrated successfully in Africa, in South Africa, with Namibia uh, being part of the, of the CSA competition, demonstrated successfully in um, the West Indies. And, and, you know, USA hasn't just shown up and, and made up the numbers. USA has won some games. USA has beaten the Leeward Islands a couple of times in that Cricket West Indies competition. So it's not like they're just getting pounded every game. They've actually been quite competitive and won some games. So they're not humiliating themselves by any means. They're learning, they're, they're improving. Uh, if Papua New Guinea got that opportunity in Australia, I think it would be fantastic. And, and definitely in Asia. Um, outside of the Asia Cup, if, if there's an opportunity for Nepal to, you know, we, at the start we mentioned Afghanistan and why isn't Afghanistan getting an opportunity to play in the Ranji Trophy, but why not Nepal? As so a team uh, into the Ranji Trophy or, or you know, the one-day cup in India or the side psychology the Trophy, there's no reason why Nepal couldn't enter a team and rep- be represented and participate, and that would be fantastic for them. Um, so there are some some pieces of evidence where it has already been occurring, and that should only encourage some other regions to fo- take take that lead and follow that lead and open up some opportunities for some other countries, hopefully, in the future.
0: What what your answer has sort of made me understand is that uh, uh, a strong trade South Africa and a strong. Uh, strong South African cricket team is not just important for the sake of international cricket and for the sake of South Africa being good at cricket. It's very important for the game of cricket to develop in Africa. Like how you said that because Namibia was allowed to play in the domestic circuit of South Africa was the reason that their players couldn't So So it's, a, it's, it's an excellent point why, uh, you know, uh, someone like a South Africa should also be looked after by the ICC and the big teams to ensure that they are also doing well else if they stop doing well then the growth of cricket in that whole continent will, will will be restricted because they are the ones who are providing a way for associate countries to do well and become better so and uh, like another thing that i've learned today so uh, you know i just mentioned about uh, how and how important south africa is for the growth of game not only uh, you know, from there, from their own perspective, but the perspective of other countries in the Africa region to to become better cricketing nations. Now, uh, you know, you've mentioned about how uh, you know Papua New Guinea can be can be a great side and everything. Now, I I just want to know how uh, how important is cricket or success in cricket related to the societal structure or you know how is it viewed in a larger viewpoint? Because if we go back 20 years, you know, if you if you, if you look look how how cricket was being celebrated in uh, in Bangladesh, like when Bangladesh had defeated Pakistan in the 1999 World Cup, they declared a national holiday. Cricket was huge in Sri Lanka when you know it, it, even when they were not the force that they were uh, a few years back. So, do you think s- success in cricket also sort of Affects the the larger picture of the society in a few countries, say countries like Nepal. I'm I'm not speaking of Afghanistan because we've already seen the impact cricket has had in in Afghanistan. Because Rashid Rashid Khan has said that how people now genuinely look forward to uh, taking up cricket as a as a genuine option. So any other such story which comes from any other uh, you know associate nation, it happens
1: where cricket is. Ingrained in the culture, and there's a strong grassroots scene. Okay, so in Nepal, before Nepal really burst onto the scene at, at senior level, with Sandeep Lamechani and Paraskatka and Gianna Dramala and Sharad Basakar and Hassan Regmi and some of these other players, Kami and Karen KC, who have really emerged in the senior team in the last decade. They were historically very, very competitive at under 19 World Cups, 2004, 2006, 2010, no, not 2010, 2004, 2006, I want to say 2008, they were either going to the the final of the plate competition or they were winning the plate competition, uh, which is essentially the loser's bracket, but they were beating Test Nations as part of their course to victory in, in the plate competition, and that was the evidence that they had a very, very strong junior cricket scene and grassroots cricket scene. So there was support at, at local level and in the community for the game. And you could see the the foundations there being laid of, of a future success at men's level or at senior level. And you're starting to see the evidence that now in Papua New Guinea as well, Papua New Guinea for years and years and years has been very successful at under 19 level going to, I don't, I think, they may have missed one under-19 World Cup or they may not have even missed any under-19 World Cups in the last 16 or 18 years. I think they've been to every single under-19 World Cup represented in the East Asia Pacific region. So they've had an extraordinarily successful um, run at junior level, with the exception of Japan, was the team that qualified for the last uh, under-19 World Cup out of the East Asia Pacific instead of um, Papua New Guinea. And there are some interesting circumstances around that another story for another day but anyway the point is Papua New Guinea has had a very very successful um junior structure in place and they've got their playing numbers you know we were talking about USA earlier in the fact that the pyramid is inverted you've got um you know thousands and thousands of adults but very you know minuscule percentage by comparison at junior level Papua New Guinea is is the proper pyramid if you will okay Papua New Guinea's playing numbers at junior level are enormous and it works their way up into the senior team okay and you can see that if this continues to be sustained and the, the senior players are now in central contract they're not extravagant but they're getting paid you know they, they work as staff members at Papua New Guinea whether it's working at the, the Amini Stadium or as junior development officers or coaches local coaches the point is they get paid to work for cricket and there's there's a uh, a career path for them in cricket enabled by the rhodia status and um in those countries where where the foundation is strong when there is success it is widely 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 celebrated so Nepal is a great example New guinea is a great example in spite of the fact that usa and uae and oman have ODI status that doesn't exist in those countries and because in each place the cricket is predominantly expat based very very minimal negligent numbers in terms of the youth infrastructure it's not widely celebrated in the in the main community it's kind of an underground sport you know if you know that cricket exists you know where to find it but if you didn't know anything about cricket you wouldn't have no clue that cricket is a a a sport where your country's in the top 15 in the global rankings in the UAE or Oman and and the USA so that reference that you made to, to Sri Lanka and to Bangladesh you know Bangladesh going back to 99 um you know beating Pakistan and the World Cup and then parlaying that into test status and and the celebrations and the national holiday and all that. Um, Again, Bangladesh was a country where cricket had a huge imprint in the fabric of the community. Okay, so which countries are most likely to replicate what Bangladesh did in 1999 or what Afghanistan has has done recently? Afghanistan, again, has a a very significant imprint in the community in... um, in Afghanistan, in terms of there are very few sports that are celebrated. Period, and the fact that Afghanistan has risen up in cricket as a point of national pride. Okay, it's not like it's not like Rashid Khan is a nobody. Rashid Khan is he's not just somebody in cricket. He's just somebody in terms of the national culture of Afghanistan. Right. Um, Sandy Blamire is somebody in the national culture of Nepal. Okay. Uh, Asad Vala. The Amini family, they are somebody in, in the national culture of Papua New Guinea. Okay. Steven Taylor for the US scene. He's not somebody that's in the national culture of American sports. Nobody knows who Steven Taylor is in America outside of his, his hometown in Florida, right? Um in 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 the UAE. Is anybody, you know. Does anybody know outside of the cricket community who is who is Ahmed Raza? Ahmed, I, I love you. You're a great guy. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of yours. You're you're wonderful to talk to, but let's just call it fate to skate, Ahmed Raza outside of cricket. I don't I don't know too many people in UAE who if, if you know could pick Ahmed Raza out of a police lineup. Okay. Um and that, that's the struggle. In the countries where where there's a huge imprint, yeah, you can see uh cricket exploding. Even more than it already has in Nepal and in Papua New Guinea. In the USA, in the Elman, UAE, countries like that, it's going to take uh, a minor miracle for that transformation to happen in the near future.
0: Uh, definitely in terms of, you know, the pop, when you mentioned the likes of Sandeep Lamichhane and Rashid Khan, they're not only Names in in the culture of Nepal now they've become huge names in in the culture of cricket. Uh, they they've, they've played in the IPL and Sandeep Lamichane has a decent enough following in the in the city of Delhi itself because he's done well for them. Rashid Khan has become a local superstar in uh, Hyderabad. So I, I, I get what you're uh, what you're getting at.
1: But it's not just in, in India. I mean, in Nepal, like if you go to Nepal, when I was in Nepal in 2020 to cover the ODI series with, with USA and Oman, there were signs in shop windows where Sandy Blamichani was in advertising. He was a paid endorser. Like you would see him in ads. I, I remember that there was a luggage company. I can't remember if it was American Tourister or some other luggage brand. But Sandy Blamichani was like showcasing the luggage. And you have to be kind of blind or stupid not to know who Sandy Blamachani is. Whether, whether you follow cricket or not, you know who Sandy Blamichani is, right? When, when USA, and then this kind of cracked me up, when USA played Nepal in the last match, USA was bowled out for 35 by Nepal, very famous match, tied for the lowest score in ODI history with a score made by Zimbabwe, way, 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 one. Okay. Before the match, the USA ambassador to Nepal Randy Berry comes out, and uh, they had this this big kind of um, presentation where the American ambassador, very prestigious uh, diplomat, comes out to the field, and he welcomes – there's a line to greet him for the USA squad and, and the um, Nepal squad. And the American ambassador, Randy Berry, he had no clue who the hell these USA players were. Okay, He's meeting all the USA players for the first time. has no idea who any of them are but as he's walking down the Nepal line he, he greets Sandy Blemichani with like a big hearty hello, he knows who Sandy Blemichani is and, and Paris Kotka he says, hey Paris you know, Paris, how you doing? Oh, it's so good to see you again, oh, you know, haven't seen you since that function we held, you know, a couple months ago how's life, how you been? He knows Paris Kodka. he knows Paris Kotka personally okay, he knows Paris Kotka Paris Kotka is a big deal in Nepal we talk about Sandy Blemichani, Paris Kodka in Nepal, very big deal Danny Lamichani is known outside of Nepal and the IPL and internationally, but within Nepal, Paris Godka is a huge deal, okay? The American ambassador to Nepal knows Paris Godka personally and has met him and interacted with him at various uh, diplomatic functions and, and being a celebrity in Nepal, but yet he has no clue who the hell the USA players are, right? <laughs> but again, that gives you some insight into, into the, the scope of, of the celebrity status that these guys have in the culture of Nepal compared to USA.
0: <laughs> well, uh, now moving on to my last question, and uh, with this, I'll I'll wrap up also. Uh, do you think the the introduction of the ODI Super League is is going to change, uh, you know, uh, in change the scene of opportunities for the associate countries? Sorry, sorry. One more time, you could repeat that. I, you cut off me. Do you think that the that the introduction of the ODI Super League is going to change the scene of opportunities for the associate nations and associate countries. Do you think the, uh, the, the associate countries and associate nations benefiting from the ODI Super League?
1: Well, they'll benefit through performance. It's not a matter of just showing up and, and being happy that you're there. If, if the ODI Super League is gonna benefit the associate cricket, then Netherlands has to compete well. Okay, Netherlands can't afford to go winless in the Super League, because then that, that'll just give cannon fodder to all these people. You know, going back to the the argument about you know the discussion we had about people who were you know born in 2021 and and, and forget forget the, you know cricket has existed for 300 years and teams have struggled to win, right? They're going to see that and they're going to jump on that. Oh, Netherlands sucks, you know? They can't win, they're not competitive. Why do they even bother including an associate in the 13-team Super League? Get them out of here, right? If if Netherlands is going to help the associate cause, not just for Netherlands, but for associate cricket broadly, Netherlands has to make a a mark in the Super League. Netherlands cannot afford to finish last. At the very least, Netherlands has to finish above Zimbabwe. Netherlands has to finish above either Ireland or Afghanistan. It's going to be tough to finish above Afghanistan. But, um, you know, Netherlands has to finish above one of Ireland's Zimbabwe, or Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is struggling an awful lot right now in the Super League. And again, it's, it's not everybody plays everybody. You have to keep that in mind. So Sri Lanka has, has suffered quite heavily in, in the losses they've had so far, and they've already had points deducted based on their overage. And they're not, there's no guarantee that they're going to be able to, to make up points because, again, they don't play everybody, so it's not like they can just automatically beat up on some of the lower-ranked teams to, to make up points. Um, and in some ways that also works to, to Netherlands advantage. Um, so, uh, that they're not going to necessarily have to, have to face all of the strongest teams. It's just a matter of accumulating points when and where they can. So, you know, if, if there's going to be an argument made for including more teams in the Super League going forward, whether, you know, expanding it to 14 teams or 15 teams or, you know, whatever number and the competitive nature of it going forward. Netherlands, it's so crucial for associate cricket that Netherlands performs very well on behalf of all of associate cricket.
0: So, What you're essentially saying is, and it makes a lot of sense, is that although the 11 players on the park will be playing under the name of Netherlands and under the flag of Netherlands, but they will have the support and sort of blessings of of all associate nations, namely Nepal, Papua, New Guinea, uh, Namibia, Oman, USA, Canada, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it, it, it's a it's a very important point that you make because if if Netherlands don't do well and if they do very poorly, then the same set of people who have been bashing Zimbabwe or other countries on whatever little failure that they've had, then they'll have an argument to make that we we really should close elite cricket to ten teams only. And you know if if the winner of uh, you know, the qualifying tournament has not done well, then what else can you expect from other teams? So it's it's an excellent point. Uh, Peter, I'd like to say that I've had a lot of fun having this uh, chat with you. I've myself, you know, learned a lot about associate cricket because like I said, it's, it's not covered much in the mainstream media and you struggle to get a lot of information and stories. Very grateful to you for, you know, bringing those stories to us and uh, sharing your experiences, sharing the facts of, of, of the associate world of cricket, which sometimes, you know, are hidden in the narratives like we discussed today. And I hope you had fun and, uh, you know, hope you felt that uh, probably this conversation of ours is going to change a few minds, if, if not what
1: Well, thank you, Gerkarat, for having me on. And yeah, ho- hopefully, if anything, we've reminded people that cricket didn't start in 2021. There is a rich history in the game that people need to acknowledge and remember. And hopefully there will be much greater history written from 2021 going forward.
0: Thank you, Peter. And you know, uh, all of you should remember that Peter Peter has taken a couple of names from the Papua New Guinea team. If they do well, you you need to remember where he took those names first, and you have to <laughs> share this share this video. Then again, with whosoever you know that okay, a certain players were picked up by Peter De La Pena in his stat on Cup with Gil. If you like this, please don't forget to subscribe to the channel and share this video with others. We will keep coming up with uh, a lot more content on not just cricket, but other sports as well. In the meantime, do watch the remaining episodes. If you haven't, do watch out the remaining snippets of all of the chats that are there. And like I said, subscribe to the channel. Also, to know more about USA Cricket and Associate Cricket, you can always uh, follow Peter on Twitter. Follow Peter on Facebook. He has a page. And also, you can follow his podcast so that you know more about the associate cricket and, more importantly, American cricket. That's it for today. That's it from this episode of Cup Shop with Gil. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you.